So the Olympics are upon us again. Um, <clears throat> I try very hard to pretend that I'm not interested, but everywhere you go, you're seeing, it's almost like it's the same scene on repeat. You're seeing three athletic individuals standing on a podium. They're all receiving these little coins, and they all have this smile that stretches from ear to ear. Um, well, at least the one who's got the gold has a smile that stretches from ear to ear. And I try very hard to pretend that I'm not interested, but I must admit that the vicarious appeal doesn't escape me and I think to myself that must feel so good they look like they feel so good that I feel good just watching them and for a moment I I fantasise about what it would feel like to win Olympic gold the thought's pretty appetising isn't it the desire for greatness is almost um, constitutional to our carnal state it's not that in part, how the serpent tempted Eve, promising greatness. It is a blessing to have God's word as a a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. Let's begin with prayer. God Almighty, in heaven above, we, your creatures, come before you. We want to receive from your word. We ask that you prepare our hearts to receive and cultivate your word, even as it is imperfectly preached this morning. We ask that your Holy Spirit might work to transform our stubborn ways, to conform to your perfect ways. We ask that you might spur us on to strive for obedience and service to your name. To your name alone be glory. Amen. There's a determination in the first verse that we just read um, that's easily missed. Jesus, we read, merely passes through Galilee. Galilee had been his home turf. It was the location of mass crowds and many miracles. But now Jesus, coming from further north, heads not to, but through Galilee. Jesus is heading for Jerusalem. Jesus is on mission. Now, as Jesus travels through Galilee, he does so discreetly. Why? For he was teaching his disciples. Jesus wants those who are closest to him to understand the nature of the mission they are embarking upon. The content of his teaching regarding the nature of his mission is given to us in a few verses, in in a few sentences in verse 31. I suspect, though, that Jesus spoke at length on this subject with the ample time that they were afforded as they travelled on foot through Galilee. The disciples, however, continue to demonstrate ignorance. They have the delayed vision of the blind man who received his sight only progressively with time. They have had the opportunity to ask him for clarification, but they're too afraid. Now, while they might um, sorry, while they might have been a little bit sheepish to talk about all that suffering that Jesus was trying to explain to them, they don't seem too shy when it comes to the matter of glory, vain glory, that is. And here begins the first of three lessons. Jesus was the gold medal favourite. To say that he was 100 metres in front in the 100 metre sprint, that's selling him short. But the disciples, the other athletes, can still fight it out for bronze and silver, can't they? They can still fight for a spot on the podium. It should be asked, is there anything wrong with seeking to excel in the faith? And the answer is a resounding no. Are we not instructed in Philippians? There we are. Um... 
Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And again, reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it? Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Jesus and his disciples arrive at Capernaum, and Jesus asked them what they had been discussing on the road. And the answer? Silence. The above scripture talks of striving for deeper fellowship with Christ, service to Christ, and glory for Christ. The disciples here don't strive for God's glory, but they argue for their own glory. Concerning striving which is honourable, we read again from 1 Corinthians. Um, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Um, I'm trying to keep the scripture references on the screen, just in case I forget to say them. Again, reading from Philippians chapter 3. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Skipping down to verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That is what we should strive for. But the disciples, what do they strive for? They hadn't been discussing how they could press on for the kingdom or share in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. They had been discussing, arguing about which one of them was the greatest. As mentioned, the disciples did not yet understand Jesus' mission. They haven't understood his plain teaching about his coming crucifixion. They hope that victory lies ahead in Jerusalem. They hope that Christ will take the throne and they squabble about who's going to get to be vice president. This attitude, my friends, is counterfeit Christianity. Authentic Christianity proceeds from a heart of love for God. Because I love God, I will serve him. Because I love God, I crave his approval. Counterfeit Christianity proceeds from a heart of love for self. Because I love myself, I will serve. Because I love myself, I crave everyone's approval. Because I love myself, I want to be first. How would you describe your practice of the faith? What motives drive it? I don't want to be too hard on the disciples here. This is one discussion, one occasion. It's it's not their finest hour. It potentially isn't even their norm. They had at other times already demonstrated both piety and sacrifice and Um, And as they proceed to Jerusalem and the reality of the pending crucifixion dawns upon them, Thomas will later exclaim, let us also go that we may die with him, John 11, 16. That is not counterfeit Christianity. But for the instruction of our own souls, God has here preserved for our reading the shameful conduct of the disciples on this occasion. What here separates the disciples from the Pharisees who... Quoting Matthew 23, love the place of honour at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Isn't it a shame when we find the way of the world at home in the church? 
What were you discussing on the way? Jesus asks them. Silence. I ask again, how would you describe the practice of your faith? What motivates it? What will you have to say when Jesus asks you about the conversations of your own heart? Jesus does not outright rebuke them for their selfish attitudes, but Jesus provides them with an example that will redefine how they understand greatness. He says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. And with that, he takes a child in his arms and he says, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. The disciples had hoped for a podium and Jesus gives them a playpen. Now, in our very touchy-feely, sentimental culture, kids can sometimes be used as symbols of innocence and beauty. That is not the point here. And anyone who thinks that kids represent innocence hasn't spent a lot of time with kids. Um, No, the idea here is that you are going to the work Christmas parties, let's say. You go into the work Christmas party, and this is always a good opportunity for networking, for reinforcing your connections with the movers and the shakers in the company. You're in the car, and you're going through it all in your head. The CEO's name, Ray. Ray, he likes golf. Better ask him about his golf. And he had that holiday in Canada. I'll ask him about how his holiday went. And his kids. Oh, there's three. Sarah, Alex. Oh, I can't remember the last one. Look, if I have to talk to him, I'll just call him Buddy. Hey, Buddy, how are you going? The point here is that Jesus is a child because children are unimportant in society. Who is this kid? Who does he belong to? We don't even know. So you're at the work Christmas party helping yourself to some nibblies. The CEO walks over and says, Hi, Jack, glad you could make it. Great, you think. He remembered my name. And then you turn to greet him. You're thinking, this is my chance to ask him about his Canadian holiday and then I'm going to move the conversation sideways to talk about how well I've performed in all my key performance indicators this year. And as you turn to look at him, you see over in the corner, you see a teenager looking quite visibly upset. You recognise the teenager. It's easy to recognise the teenager because they look out of place, if you know what I mean. You recognise them because you saw them hop out of the car in the car park with with the janitor. You assume the janitor is their mum. And there they are looking visibly upset. You can't see mum around. Teenagers. They're so emotional, you think. Now's my chance to ask the CEO about that Canadian holiday. If you want a promotion in Christ's economy, you stop schmoozing with the boss and you go over... And you check if that kid is okay. And if they want to talk, you talk. And if they want to talk for half an hour, you talk for half an hour. And if they need a lift home, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you leave the party and you give them a lift home. That is what it looks like to be great in God's economy. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. There is something amazingly beautiful about what Christ does here. And it is not hugging a picture-perfect child for a moment like a politician at election time. It is embracing a nobody and saying, this, this is a somebody and I love them. And if you want to welcome me, you welcome them. And if you want to be great, you serve them. And the other thing that is beautiful here is that greatness in the kingdom of God is not reserved for the gifted or the privileged. 
Greatness in the kingdom of God is not reserved for the gifted or the privileged. You don't have to be good with words or numbers. You don't have to be an athlete or a socialite. It's got nothing to do with where you were born or who you were born to. As one author writes, greatness presents itself to every believer in the common and simple tasks of serving others. How and where is God asking you to serve? Please don't ignore the opportunities that you have to serve the lowly and the outcast. Let's briefly pray. Oh God, we pray, forgive us for the many times that we neglect to do the good that you would have us do. We ask, amen. My friends, release the crown and embrace the cross. There are, there are three summary sentences to help you remember today's message. This is the first one. Release the crown and embrace the cross. The journey continues. Jesus and his companions are traveling through Galilee, bound for Jerusalem. John comes to Jesus. Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop them. Uh, sorry, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Sometimes we like to characterise Peter as the one who can always put his foot in his mouth. Um, look, Peter certainly had a, had a gift there. He was certainly very talented, um, but he was not the only one who could do it. And John, as if to say, Peter, you're not all that special, John here shows us just how well he can do it. Hadn't Jesus just rebuked them for their evident self-interests as they sought status in the kingdom of God? What does John say? We tried to stop him because he wasn't following you. No. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. John is saying, Jesus, this guy is not following us, not following you and me, Jesus. What a narrow mindset. The assumption is, if he's not moving in our circles, then he is not following Christ. Who is this unknown exorcist? Uh, Exorcist is one who drives out demons. Who is this unknown exorcist, this outsider who claims to serve Christ? Well, the only thing that we know about him is that, indeed... He does serve Christ. This is demonstrated by his actions. When the Pharisees had accused Jesus of driving out demons by Beelzebub in, in Matthew 12, Jesus argues that Satan... Actually, I might have that on the slide. Jesus argued that Satan can't drive out Satan. The fact that this chap is driving out demons demonstrates he is from God. John could assume that this man is... Um, <coughs> sorry, whoops that John could assume that this man is not a Christ follower just because he is not one of their travelling party or not one of their group demonstrates a narrow mindset that almost seeks to monopolise the Messiah. The attitude is that the Messiah belongs to a certain group, not that the group belongs to the Messiah. It's petty tribalism, isn't it? Now, of course, that was the first century, okay? Tribalism was the norm there. That was how they did things. We now live in the 21st century. Tribalism is behind us. We don't do any of this. We can move on, right? Yeah, no. According to the Centre of the Study of Global Christianity, there are approximately, wait for it, 41,000 Christian denominations. I don't know what this centre is. I don't know how they got to that number. Uh, I suspect they might have overcounted maybe... um, I hope that they might have overcounted. Nevertheless, that is a staggering estimate. I hope it's inflated, um, but their estimate is not 40, it's not 400. Their estimate is 
41,000. It's hard to think that we could be any more tribal than we already are. Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love, have love for one another, not that you have 41,000 different factions for one another. I'm not trying to denounce denominations right now, but I want us to be aware of the carnal, schismatic tendencies that we bring to the unified body. Uh, schismatic just means to, to, to tear into two, often with a bit of you know, animosity. Jesus quickly teaches John a lesson. You do not define the boundaries of the church, John. I define the boundaries of the church. It is not those who associate with you that belong to the kingdom. It is those that associate with me. There are two things that we need to um, unpack carefully. Firstly, Jesus says, no one who does a mighty work in my name will uh, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. It is worth recognising that there are works done by those who do not claim Christ, and there are also illegitimate works claimed by those who illegitimately claim Christ. Jesus is not endorsing either. Shortly, as his travelling party enters Jerusalem, Jesus will teach the disciples caution, noting that false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. On this occasion, however, with this unknown exorcist, what is in view here is uh, what is in view here is not a counterfeit miracle. What is in view here is a legitimate work done in the name of Jesus. Today's scripture is not about how to smell a fake. Such a lesson is, is gleaned from plenty of other places in scripture. But here, as we read this scripture, we assume this exorcism to be a genuine work of God. John doesn't assume, to be, John doesn't assume it to be anything otherwise. Jesus endorses it. The lesson here, if I understand it correctly, is if someone is following Christ and bearing fruit... Don't let your tribalism stop them. Are we afraid that Christ will be humiliated by this renegade? No, for anyone who is so engaged with Christ, connected, as it were, to the vine and bearing true fruit, they can't quickly desert their Lord and King. You will recognise them by their fruits. The second thing we need to unpack is what Jesus says next. For the one who is not against us is for us. These words of Jesus are sorely needed today. We need to meditate upon them and apply them as a healing balm to treat the selfish and schismatic tendencies that we bring. Before we do such, however, let's ensure that we understand what Jesus is saying. You see, my non-Christian neighbour, he thinks it's a fantastic thing that I'm a Christian. He's not against me. You've probably had similar experiences. Are these people then for us? And doesn't Jesus elsewhere say... Sorry, I've got the wrong verse there. Ah, thanks. Um, Now I've lost my place. Sorry, doesn't Jesus elsewhere say, whoever is not with me is against me, in Matthew 12. So what's the deal? There are those out there who are for Jesus, and there are those out there who are against Jesus, and there are those out there who seem just plain indifferent. Is this passive middle ground for or against Jesus? A few observations. Firstly, there is no middle ground. You belong to the kingdom of darkness or you belong, or you belong to the kingdom of light. There is no kingdom of grey. There is no neutrality. This truth underpins both statements. 
both the one he makes here in Mark and the one that he made in Matthew. But they're framed differently on each occasion and for good reason. In Matthew, Jesus is driving out demons and facing off with his critics, the Pharisees. For those who watch these religious heavyweights go head to head, they have just been warned. They can't stay on the sidelines. There are no sidelines. No, they either get behind Christ and march with him or they stay put in front of Christ, opposed to Christ, as Christ marches forward, victoriously casting out demons and trouncing all opposition. Here in Mark, however, Jesus is not addressing the crowd of onlookers, but seeking to teach his immature disciples a lesson against their budding tribalism. The disciples, it seems, are starting to form their own little exclusive club. And to this, and with reference to those who serve God but do not belong to this little club, Jesus says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus Jesus is reiterating the same truth. There are only two types of people in this world, but he has framed it differently on this occasion to help his disciples recognise their folly to make sure they're not too quick to relegate Christ's followers to the other group. The difference in circumstances and audiences is, and intent is perhaps made all more obvious by the pronouns. To the crowds, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. To the disciples, um, for the one who is not against us, plural, is for us. When it comes to Jesus addressing the world, if you're not for him, then you are against him. When it comes to Jesus addressing his schismatic church, if someone is not against you, then they are for you. We need to remember that. Within the church, we're going to meet people who do not move in, your, in our social circles, who do not share our ethnic backgrounds, who do not agree with our political ideology, and perhaps most difficultly, difficultly um, they might not practice their devotion to our common Lord in the same way that we choose to practice our devotion. They might sing different songs, they might read different authors, they might worship in different buildings. Or even more difficultly, they might worship in the pew beside us and we need to work out how we are going to get along. Schism needs to be avoided in the church of God. Someone shared with me this week that they they are concerned that with the present COVID crisis, there are schismatic features coming into the church based on our approach to it, our approach to public health. COVID is a big thing. Unity in the body of Christ is far, far bigger Now, to be clear here, I'm not endorsing pluralism. I'm not even endorsing broad ecumenicalism. That is the unity of all so-called Christians. It's difficult to speak on this passage when today so many Christians and Christian traditions have all but lost the Christ whose name they falsely carry. We We are not endorsing that in any way. Meanwhile, the true church, holy to God above, has been so often and so deeply wounded by our fractious behaviours. The unambiguous lesson that we draw from this passage today is that it doesn't matter how, some, how closely someone follows our path, but rather how closely they follow Christ's footsteps. When you see God sanctifying those you have differences with, rejoice. When you see God praised amongst those that do not belong to your tribe, rejoice. 
And when you see God working through those you have no association with, bearing fruit, oh, rejoice. My friends, we're not here building our kingdom. We're building Christ's. The second sentence, lower your flag and raise Christ. Let's continue. I'm just going to check I'm on the right slide. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The world says that if you love your kids, you're going to provide them with everything, with every opportunity that they need to become all they can be, all they can be in this life. Imagine your child shows potential to excel. They are driven. They want to succeed. They don't want to be a nobody. You send them to the most prestigious school in town. They want to be somebody. They excel. They say, when I grow up, I want a nice car and a nice house. And so they go on to get top grades. You encourage them. Their thirst is not satisfied. What a driven child, others say. You feel proud. What a success. You help them pursue tertiary education at prestigious universities. They are consumed by the pursuit of excellence. Oh, you must be so proud, others say. I did a good job, you say to yourself. I fostered their potential. I spurred them on. I did a good job. Is that all you've done for them? In the light of eternity, you have at best done nothing. It actually more sounds like you might have cultivated an obsession which will draw, sorry, which will drown out their faith and foster their greed. We're not here about to preach a message that is anti-elitism, but I want to say that there are many tendencies that we have in ourselves, that our children have, that others around us have, that we need to be aware of and, and we need to be sensitive to and cautious to. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, some of you are probably thinking, hey, that was a little bit unfair. Like that application, they didn't cause their child to sin. Others of you are probably thinking, hey, it's just as well I don't have kids and I don't work with kids. I'm off the hook. I want to draw out a few things from this first verse. Firstly, the scripture doesn't say kids. It says little ones. The word is used elsewhere to describe kids and they are clearly included in the application here, um, even as Jesus included the child in verse 36. Uh, But the context uh, and the meaning is is much broader. Um, It's often, as in the last part of this verse from Hebrews 8.11, refers to anyone who is little of stature, anyone who's common. Um, They shall all know me from the least of them, little of them, to the greatest. In context, Jesus has just finished rebuking John for his treatment of that other disciple, the little guy who wasn't part of the Twelve. And seemingly without a break, he now continues and he warns us about causing one of these little ones, one of these little guys who believe in me to sin. also reinforcing what Jesus says here to the event which happened immediately preceding it is the Greek word for sin used here. The word is scandalizo. The word is not always translated as sin, and indeed some of you might have translations which translate it as uh, to stumble or something similar. 
The word doesn't emphasize the morally evil dimension of sin, but it rather carries the idea of putting a stumbling block or an impediment in the way whereby someone trips. Uh, in Matthew, uh, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus says, warns his disciples that tonight all of you will fall away from me. The word there is the same word, scandalizo, fall away. Peter sticks his foot in his mouth and says, even if all others fall away, I will not fall away. <clears throat> In the epistles, Paul uses this word even to describe otherwise innocent actions that nonetheless trip up another brother or sister in Christ. Uh, This is Romans 14, 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that causes your brother to stumble. Same word. This other little guy has been trying to exercise his God-given ministry to drive out demons, and John has put a stumbling block in his way. So what is in view here? Well, clearly John's actions are in the crosshairs, but broadly for us today, we need to be aware that we will all need to give an account for any action that we take that cripples another's faith. If you don't work with kids, this this scripture still applies to you, okay? Anything that we do that causes a brother to to stumble, we will need to give an account for. Jesus um, continues what started as a discussion about endangering others... And he now continues this as a discussion about endangering ourselves. Moving on from this verse, um, again, as we read through the next sort of section, each time the, the same Greek word for sin is used, scandalizo, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Is this hyperbole? This is a little drastic, isn't it? If you think this is excessive, you need to answer the question, would you rather have one hand crippled or both hands burn in hell for eternity. And that's the question that Jesus follows up with. That's the point. Any action that you take for the salvation of your soul cannot be too drastic. Any, te- any temporal deprivation, however severe, is always outweighed by eternity. The right way to approach this passage is to recognise the indisputable logic that says that anything that stands in the way of your salvation, anything that will make you stumble or fall, even if it were a crucial part of your very body, it is not worth keeping. And then ask yourself, where be the snare of the devil in my life? In 1 Peter 5.8 we read, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Where is the scandal, the stumbling block, and how can you avoid it? What do you do? Where do you go? What do your eyes look at? The things that our hands and our feet and our eyes do. If you're a compulsive liar, don't become a second-hand car salesman. There are choices that we can make in life that will give greater opportunity to our sinful desires. If you already are a second-hand car salesman and you're doing quite well as a compulsive liar, quit your job. Even if you can't find another job, it is better to be a pauper in this life and a prince for eternity. I choose this example because, to my knowledge, it doesn't apply to anyone here, okay? But are you sitting there now feeling just a little bit uncomfortable about something that only you know? What is it that you're feeling uncomfortable about? Do I really have to make this or that change, you ask yourself? Remember, God's desire is to purify you and make you holy. 
If you have opportunity to guard yourself against sin, do it. If you struggle with alcohol, don't go to the pub. If you're prone to anger and violence, don't play contact sports. If greed consumes you, get out of the share market. And if gossip engulfs you, and this is going to sound really radical, delete Facebook forever. It is God who provides deliverance from sin. It took his power and nothing less to redeem the Israelites from the land of Egypt. God has redeemed you. If you want to now journey to the promised land, you cannot keep one foot in Egypt. The final two verses of this chapter are challenging to understand. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I'm not confident in my understanding of these verses. Uh, I don't know who, too many people who are. Um, but it is right that we consider them, and I'm going to very tentatively offer one way of, of understanding them. The combination of metaphors of salt and fire can be quite confusing. Firstly, with respect to salt, let's remember, as I'm sure we all do, um, that Jesus had earlier proclaimed in his Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth, indicating the beneficial effect his followers are to have on the society and world at large, a preserving and flavouring effect. We also remember that salt is used in the Old Testament as a sign of covenant, and again, perhaps because of its enduring properties. Accordingly, the Israelites in Leviticus are actually uh, instructed to make sure they add salt to their grain offerings, the salt of the covenant. Fire, fire is a powerful, destructive, but purifying force. Metaphorically, it often represents the working of the Holy Spirit, the working of God, or refining trials of life. So when Jesus tells us that we will be salted with fire, i.e. have salt added to us through fire... He might be indicating either the work of the Holy Spirit or the refining trials of life uh, that, whereby we develop that distinctive Christian flavour. Biblically, uh, both the Spirit and the trials contribute to the process of our sanctification. The question that we all immediately ask is, how can salt lose its saltiness? Can salt lose its saltiness? <clears throat> In the first century, salt was largely sourced as rock salt from salt mines. Rock salt was composed of a variety of salt compounds. Uh, sodium chloride, which is your typical table salt, it's the one that tastes oh so good and makes every food taste better. Um, and other salts like calcium chloride, which tastes horribly bitter. Rock that was exposed to the elements um, could have the sodium chloride leached from it. Um, sodium chloride being far more soluble than most of the other salts, whereas some of the other less desirable salts, um, like calcium chloride, uh, would, would remain in that white crystal. So the thought is that uh, potentially in certain situations you could have salt which had lost its saltiness, salt which had lost its uh, desirable flavour. The real, the real question is, or the real point is, um, salt is good, but if you lose your saltiness, can you be made salty again? And the answer is no. There's no way to get that salt flavour back into those um, now worthless crystals. 
And in the closing verse, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves, i.e. maintain that distinctive Christian flavour in your life and be at peace with one another. This last sentence suddenly seems to come out of nowhere. He has, he's been talking about salt and fire, not peace. Um, he says, and be at peace with one another. And it refocuses the discussion. This all started, this whole discussion started with John's hostility to an unknown exorcist. And now the teaching has sort of come full circle. Don't stop this guy. Don't trip up the little ones. Don't trip yourself. Rather, keep that distinctive Christian flavour, a flavour we should add not of schism but of unity, and be at peace with one another. Um, In grappling with these final two verses, which are difficult to understand, I want to make sure that we keep the broad application in view. I recently had a patient, she was 16 years old, and ostensibly she was very, very healthy. She could probably run 10Ks faster than I can run 10Ks. But in another sense, she was very sick. It was very sad. Despite her, her low weight and her almost gaunt appearance, she continued to feel as though she was overweight. Many of you will be familiar with the condition I'm talking of. She kept doing her running and her dance classes and, and eating next to nothing in an attempt to lose more weight. I talked to her about the health implications that her malnourished state brought about, including the risk of sudden cardiac death. Something has to change, I said. I told her that it was okay if she wanted to keep doing some running, perhaps moderating a bit and in, in increasing her caloric intake, but I said... I think you should give up dance. From previous conversations that I'd had with her, it seemed as though the image focus that was inherent in the dance that she was doing was a big driver in her current illness. Up until this point, she'd agreed with me with everything I said. When I said, I think you should give up dance, her eyes went wide. I've been doing dance since I was two years old, she spat back. This patient had a disease that was threatening their very life and yet they wouldn't consider changing their life to free them from the disease. At this point, I reiterated, I think you should give up dance. And I turned to mum who was in the room and I said, and I think that you should stop paying for her lessons and driving her there. The issue is that as Christians, we can entertain things in our lives which are a stumbling block for ourselves and which can injure our own faith. And as Christians, we can facilitate these behaviours in others or impede others. We can trip others up as well. And Jesus here says, don't trip yourself up and don't trip up others. The third sentence that I want you to remember is, don't trip. There are your three sentences. I won't quiz you on those sentences afterwards. Um, This message isn't, though, complete without briefly returning to the three verses which start this section. I'll read them again. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. I will just quickly add, I'm not trying to preach a sermon which is anti-elitism and sending your kids to good schools. I'm not preaching a sermon that's anti-dance. I'm I'm asking us to think about what things in our life will be stumbling blocks. Um, 
Everything that we have read in today's scripture happens in the context of this journey to Jerusalem. Everything that the disciples get wrong here, they do so in part because they do not understand the nature of the mission. This is the second time that Jesus has clearly told them about his coming crucifixion. It's hard for us not to sit back and think, oh my goodness, those disciples are so thick. These are those who are closest to the Messiah. They've been blessed to hear his words. And yet this is how they act. I ask the question, are we any different? We who are indwelt with the very spirit of Christ, who have been blessed to read his words, and how do we act? How many times does it appear that we do not understand what it means to take up the cross? How often do we seek our own self-importance rather than acting as the servant of all? Why are we quick to step up to the podium but slow to bend down to serve? How is it that we live in a country with so few Christians and yet we have more churches than schools? The sad reality is that we are better at church splits than church plants. How is it that so many seem unwilling to relinquish even peripheral things, let alone a hand or a foot or an eye for the sake of eternity? Friends, if we want to live up to the high calling that God places upon our lives, it is imperative that we learn to dress ourselves in Christ. You see, for while the disciples were arguing for greatness, Jesus marches to bondage. While the disciples seek exclusive status, Jesus marches to death. And while the disciples are in danger of the fires of hell, Jesus marches to resurrection, his resurrection, and if we are found in him, ours also. We are all like the disciples and we will continue to trip and stumble in the same way that the disciples trip and stumble until we learn to appropriate Christ, to dress ourselves in Christ, to take up his character to submit to God the Father and allow him in the power of the Spirit, in power that surpasses our own power, to transform us. Release the crown and embrace the cross. Lower your flag and raise Christ. Don't trip. Put on Christ. Thank you, Alon.